three, two, one. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding on air live on the number one value investing podcast in the world, still in quarantine from Dallas, Texas, Mr. Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. Hope everybody is staying safe out there, uh, staying healthy, um, crazy times we are living in. If this is the first time that you're tuning in with Jeff and myself on YouTube, be sure to hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up. I was just telling Jeff all these new segments and ideas that I have for uh, YouTube. So I'm super excited to deliver a ton of different content. So make sure you follow along by hitting that subscribe button. Uh, if you want me to go over anything, make sure you leave stuff in the comment section. I always check the comments because I'm always looking for new ideas from the viewers. If you're listening to us on the podcast, uh, you should already know that a rating and review goes very far for Jeff and myself. Uh, we're very thankful for um, any sort of support that you give. So in today's podcast, Jeff, we're going to be talking about moats. And we talked a little bit about moats on the podcast. I've made a few videos about it, but I thought that your most recent focus compounding daily that was sent out uh, a couple days ago, and that's on the blog portion of our website, was so great that I thought it would make a good podcast out of it. And if you're not following me on Twitter, you definitely should be. I send out the Focus Compounding daily. Um, I tweet it out every single day, but it also goes out to your email box as well if you sign up at focuscompounding.com. Jeff, you want to see something funny? Like someone made this of us saying that I have that uh, prop bet going on to run 10 miles mm -hmm. within an hour, 45 minutes. He says, you're, my, you're, you're the coach. This is Rocky right here. All right. <laughs> uh, but um, to get this in your email box, you could sign up for it. But I also do tweet out at, at Focus Compound on Twitter. But let's talk about Moat, Jeff. And this is a topic that obviously has been popularized by Warren Buffett. He always says, mm -hmm. you want to find a business that has and I quote, a deep and wide moat, almost as if you have a uh, castle. Uh, there's been very articulate and good studies that have come out on moat in general, uh, like measuring the moat. That's a very good one. Um, all about like this concept of like return on invested capital and how it relates to a business having a moat. So I guess before we dive into it and go over what you wrote about, I mean, what to you does a business having a moat mean? Well, a business having a moat does not necessarily mean that you'll have high returns on capital, but it does mean that if you have high returns on capital, then those can be maintained because normally uh, competition would come in to reduce your returns on capital. So a moat is for some reason why it's difficult for people to come in and compete with you, to take away your customers and to do other sorts of things that we could talk about here. But basically to do the things that cause your costs to rise, your revenues to fall, your, you to lose customers. Um, and that is what causes uh, you to have fairly even sorts of returns in an industry or even returns that are pretty close between industries. So if we have certain industries that we see, which we do, things like um, branded stuff in supermarkets or personal care products or any sort of that kind of stuff, it has very high returns and it's had high returns, those industries for decades. And the leaders in those industries have had high returns for decades. So economic theory can't really explain why that is unless there's something that stops the kind of perfect competition that economists talk about. And so something has to be happening to reduce competition. So it really comes down to, I guess, these competing forces and which is why you wrote about Porter's five forces. Uh, so maybe we could go over it and see what businesses come to mind and uh, just talk about. It. So threat of new entrants. Mm -hmm. 
So what does threat that mean? Of, threat of new entrance is a really complicated one. On the one hand, uh, threat of new entrance in high moat businesses, off wide moat businesses, often people judge it to be high, uh, when in reality, I don't think it is. So examples would be like some things that have very high predictability, have had moats for years or something could be, um, think about what are the you know, top colleges in the United States and what were they 50 years ago? It's not very hard to start up another college. So that sounds weird. Uh, the same ad agencies are often leaders, the same law firms, the same accounting firms. All those things are very easy to start up. So it's easy to start them up at a low level, but it seems to be hard to start them up and get them to the same sort of scale of other things. So threat new entrance is a complicated one. Uh, the classic one that they, people give to explain why the restaurant business, for instance, is hard is threat of new entrance. It's very easy to open up a one location restaurant that turns a profit. So that would make that hard uh, as an industry. So I guess when you're thinking about handicapping a stock, or I guess uh, the potential of a new company coming in and maybe eating away at its margins, or taking its market share or its mind share? I mean, how do you think about that? Well, threat of new entrance is um, lowest in cases in which operating two units against each other in the same area would result in uh, poor returns on capital. So the classic example would be like uh, a toll bridge. You don't build two toll bridges next to each other, even if there's no regulations preventing that. Um, It's complicated though, because like I said, um, sometimes there will be new entrants, but then it, it usually results in a price war that ends it quickly. So like in the early days for uh, Vanderbilt and ferries, uh, there was uh, pricing wars where you were you know, basically taking people for free across the river, but eventually that would cause one of them to go out of business. Uh, on-the-road competition between bus, buses is uh, common in some countries. The U.S. doesn't have a lot of it, but it's uh, where there's no bus franchise, but it always results in one of the two being uh, uh, the only one left because you don't have two competing bus routes because what will happen is there'll be a price war and one of them will be driven out. So threat of new entrance to me generally means there has to be a survivable niche in which a company could start up and survive, turn a profit and still be around. And so that's why it's a problem in the restaurant industry because you can open one restaurant next to another, hurt the restaurant you're opening next to, but you both still turn enough of a profit that you'll stay in business. Whereas in certain industries, that's not true you won't run a railroad next to another railroad. So that greatly decreases the risk of a new entrant. Uh, The very classic example from one that I've written about is a cement plant. You never put a cement plant near another cement plant. And if you're in the cement business, you usually try to buy out an existing plant instead of building one near an existing plant. Interesting. I mean, are there any other businesses that come to mind that are like that? Anything with tremendous scale works that way. A lot of them are regulated though. So power generation and stuff are regulated. Um, but And some of them are complicated. Generally, you don't want to site like a theme park next to another theme park. But there are cases with casinos and theme parks and things where you do um, put them near each other because you realize that actually you're benefiting from traffic spreading over from you and you're actually getting benefits from that. But you would have to put something that kind of, um, I would say, works with the other location in a way that's complementary instead of, something that's directly the same exact thing competing with it. But uh, it's, I mean, anything, thread new entrant is really high when it doesn't require capital startup, you can lease it. I mean, a good example, like the worst thing is gyms. Gyms, uh, especially really fitness studios, not gyms, things that focus on like one thing. And 
um, those are impossibly hard in terms of thrive new entrants. And that's usually what erodes their moat and causes them to, to really go out of business and stuff pretty quickly. It's a rough industry because it's too easy for someone else to start up a competing uh, concept right next to you and to draw people away from you. It's also a little more complicated because customer retention is really poor in that industry. If you have high customer retention, that works. That kind of exceeds all of the points we'll be talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, what about threat of substitutes? So, so what's that? Yeah. So threat of substitutes is the idea that you can switch from one thing to another. So for instance, a threat of substitute, I, the idea behind it is like, like economists talk about this a lot is you could switch from using um, gasoline to using ethanol, right? And they have different costs in them. So it's possible that uh, the price of one wouldn't necessarily be moving in the same way as the price of another. So there's a limit to how high potentially you could price gasoline, say, if ethanol is really cheap or vice versa. You know, if there's some way to produce uh, an alternative. Um, you see that in some things. I was just looking at uh, the titanium dioxide business. And there's one way of doing it that's a lot better than the other. But you can substitute between the two. And so that does eventually limit you that there's a lower grade that you could buy and people will at a, at a certain price that's too high. So it limits the price of titanium dioxide from one method of production uh, from being sky high in certain cases. What about like AT&T versus Verizon? Is that sort of the same concept? Well, they're going to have that as under number five competitive rivalry because they consider those to be the exact same thing, right? Those are two offerings that are exactly the same. Threat of substitutes, they mean more like, could you replace building something with cement with instead building it with steel or wood or something like that? Got it. Got it. Uh, Bargaining power of customers. Yeah, this is a really important one and determines how high returns on capital are a lot. Um, It is a problem for like, I mentioned branded food things. Their big problem is that the Costco and Walmart and, and um, companies like that have consolidated a lot and are bigger customers of theirs than they were in the past. And so having a lot of small customers is a lot more profitable. A good example of this is um, the watch business. So in like low, in everything from Swiss watches on down to like cheaper watches, uh, the business is a lot better in Europe than in the U.S., and the reason why it's a lot better in Europe is that it's sold through a lot of smaller jewelry shops and stuff. In the U.S., you have to sell through bigger department stores who have too much bargaining power and who won't give you the space that you need. So even though a couple companies have all the watch brands that people want, there's actually not that many different places to get them. And so you have competition for the shelf space and stuff and display cases and stuff in the big department stores and things like that. So it's it's clearly, if you look at the watch brands around the world, if they break down their results, they have significantly better returns with the business that they do in Europe than in North America. Do you think a good place to start is when you come across a company that earns a high return on capital, right? Or return on equity or return on invested capital, return, whatever measure you want to use. Is it like reverse engineering from there and trying to understand what allows them to uh, earn that source of returns on that capital? I think that's the best way to do it. That's basically how Buffett has done it. He um, Even something like Mid-Continent Tab Card Company, which you can see that video that Al Schroeder talks about that, he yeah. did not buy into the company at first. He only bought into it after he had a full year of financials showing him what the results were. Um, if you explained a business to me, I might be able to guess what things about it would be good or bad, but it's really hard before you see the results. Buffett usually has like at least 10 years, usually longer, of really good results. And then what he's really assessing is not so much... Um, what is their moat? The real question he's asking is, how durable is that moat? How will that moat last? And will it get wider? 
And so you already come at it from the perspective of, okay, this company's making high returns. How do I figure out if that is sustainable? And that's really a question that matters because it, the magic formula is kind of a naive Buffett strategy in the sense that it just buys companies that have high returns on capital without trying to assess whether they have a moat. And many companies do achieve high returns on capital briefly without having a moat. Uh, any business in an industry where you have a supply shortage will have high returns on capital briefly when that happens. And there's lots of bad industries. Uh, semiconductors are a famously bad industry, but every you know, so often, probably every semiconductor company, no matter how bad, has had one year in 10 where they've earned incredible returns on capital because there's there's shortages. And so you have a brief moments of that. And, you know, um, with Buffett, it's starting with they have a good return on capital, but then how do I figure out if that's sustainable? Mm -hmm. uh, the one exception you'll notice with him is he definitely bought newspapers where they hadn't demonstrated that they would have good returns, but he knew the business so well that he knew they'd achieve it eventually. And I think you can do the same thing with like banks and stuff. You can see early on when they're really small, they're going to have excellent returns later because on a like, um, uh, they're already achieving certain good returns higher up their income statement. And so you realize once they have scale, they'll, they'll be a lot more successful. And I think that's what he had with newspapers. He realized that if they're a leading newspaper, eventually the other newspapers will go out of business and I'll make a lot of money. So like what he paid for Buffalo Evening News was a really high price. The company didn't have a history of amazing returns on capital, but he knew that it was a two-paper town. So, you know, you can do that where you can figure out that returns might get a lot better. And I've seen people do that in, in certain industries where it gets more rationalized. What about uh, next on the list, bargaining power of suppliers? Yeah. So bargaining power of suppliers is a really big one. And included in the suppliers can be things like labor and stuff too. Um, so... Bargaining power suppliers is kind of the reason why the, the best example is number three and number four is probably why something like Coca-Cola is an amazing business. And Buffett's talked about this. You buy a commodity and you sell a brand. So what that means is your suppliers and your customers don't have any bargaining power. And that's basically true for that industry. So the suppliers of a commodity don't have bargaining power. I kind of give the example of like um, Haynes Brands, right? So Haynes Brands just buys cotton. They buy some other things, but a lot of it is cotton. You can't charge Hanes brands any more for cotton uh, than you can for someone who's having a much worse use of cotton. But if you can turn cotton into a brand and sell it, you can capture all that profit, whereas someone who's making the cotton or who's dealing in it can't charge you anymore. So you want to be the one who's adding all the value. Um, another example of that is like um, Hunter Douglas and, and Shades and stuff. They literally buy aluminum and stuff. They're so vertically integrated that they'll then convert that over time into all the different parts and stuff that they need to make their, um, their blinds and their shades, whereas other people might just assemble them. So there's no way to really charge more for aluminum from to one company than another, even if one is selling it as a branded thing and someone else is selling it not like that. So the price of cotton and aluminum stuff isn't going to go up just because you can make a lot of money off of it. So it's great to buy a commodity. That's usually how you have a ton of bargaining power over your suppliers. There's other ways to do it. Having tremendous scale versus them and stuff like, um, Walmart and stuff does have a lot of power over suppliers, but you have to be careful. Walmart has tremendous power over suppliers generally, but they don't have a tremendous uh, power over suppliers in certain areas because they buy, you know, they buy huge amounts of their, um, for instance, using the Haynes Brands examples, they don't actually buy that many from that many different t-shirt uh, companies or underwear companies or uh, battery companies or, um, ketchup companies, you know, they're pretty limited in that. Like they have to sell, you know, a one, no matter what. So they, they're not going to have a ton of bargaining power there. Um, 
you know, mm-hmm. but in, in more general things, they will have a lot of bargaining power. Got it. Um, competitive rivalry. So bringing it back to AT&T and Verizon. Yeah. So this is the really big one. That's hard to judge. And it's not even clear to me if this is like something that economists can figure out ahead of time or something you have to understand historically in the industry. But competitive rivalry is one of the most important things in assessing whether a company will have high returns on capital. And it's very important to find industries where, for whatever reason, they have low competitive rivalry. So they clearly have low competitive rivalry in things like um, ad agencies and elevator companies. We know that. We can see it. Is that because they have certain collusion and whatever? I don't know exactly, but they clearly don't do certain things that competitors normally do. At other times, I think Munger one time talked about the fact that there was a period with like serial companies and stuff where they had pretty aggressive discounting with with the manufacturer's coupons. And then you have to get over that and decide not to do that. Uh, Razors became a better business when the top companies in it decided to focus on R&D and advertising instead of focusing on things like discounting. So you don't focus as much on price. So it is just... the leaders in the industry, do they focus on things that are more likely to lead to a kind of a higher image for the product uh, generally in the industry and not cutthroat competition and stuff like that? And so like give the cement example that I gave or something, they know not to bid um, for business that's outside of their their certain area because they know it's too expensive to ship and stuff. So generally, it's better to be around competitors who are not that aggressive. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think about like competitive rivalry? I mean, would that be like a Coca-Cola versus Pepsi type of thing? Because that's just based on personal preference, right? No, Coca-Cola and Pepsi is a great example. They don't aggressively cut their prices below each other. Uh-huh. So um, I, I like to see companies like they could talk about the cola wars and stuff, right? 30 years ago or, or a little bit more than that now. Yeah. Um, that's a lot of advertising with celebrities and, and spending tons on ads and doing all this different stuff. I mean, there was some competition for Pepsi and taking shares away from um, Coke in terms of supermarkets and Pepsi continues to have very good share in supermarkets versus Coke in some places where it didn't before in the U S but a lot of it is focused on things that don't harm. I mean, for one thing, they don't harm the cola industry. Neither of the companies did things to say the other company's product is terrible. You can't trust most cola, but our cola is safe things like mm-hmm. that. You don't want a competitor who, you know, comes out and says, you know, all of the other cars are terrible cars. Ours is the only one you can trust. You yeah. want ones that, that don't do that. And there are industries where companies do that, where they try to, to make it on the case that other products are untrustworthy and stuff. So you want to do things that, of course, help the image of the overall industry. That's helpful. And also things that focus on stuff, like I said, like R&D and marketing stuff, usually as opposed to price competition. Um, price competition, especially that, that other people can see very obviously is problematic. It's hard to raise prices. If you keep showing prices to everyone, everyone knows exactly what a product costs. It's much better to have more opaque pricing. Mm-hmm. Is it kind of funny? I mean, whenever you sit down at a restaurant and you're like, uh, I'll have a Diet Coke or I'll have a Coke. And they're like, Oh, we only have Pepsi products. Everyone's <laughs> always like, ah, oh, okay. Uh, I'll take a water. <laughs> I'll take an iced tea. That's funny. Um, network effect. And you use Morningstar's economic moat. Uh, yes, network. They have a, yeah, Morningstar's economic mode has five points on it, so it fits nicely with Porter's five forces. Yeah, so network effect is the one that everyone loves on the internet stuff, um, and it's true. Yeah, generally, there's uh, there are certain things we could argue about exactly how network effects work. Let's where argue about the, it. Okay, where there are benefits to having more people on each side of the network. Let's take an exchange as an example: buyers and sellers. 
to some extent, there's a benefit for buyers and sellers to have more of the other side in an, in an exchange. So we can think about cases for network effects where people could say there's network effects and everything from dating sites to stock exchanges to something like Copart to uh, people will say eBay. things like, ooh. To, well, eBay is a very good example because eBay is a great example of actually having big network effects. Mm. But um, that's one that's very, that is the most obvious that I can think of is eBay. Um, auction things always benefit from network effects. Um, so there are, however, kind of complicated issues in network effects because there is a level at which a minimum level would be sufficient for you. And there also is some cases in which you can be on more than one network at the same time. So the benefits are less, uh, are more questionable. So it's a little harder for me to judge the network effects of, let's say Uber or something, because if there's another network which has a sufficient number near me, how much does it matter to have more? Um, it may matter a little bit, but it doesn't matter as much as if I'm transacting large amounts of business and want to have the lowest possible, like the fastest execution and the lowest cost on things or to have an auction where I'm only getting one auction for this thing and stuff. And then you have things where there obviously must be big network effects, dating stuff. But on the other hand, there's a, probably a much greater chance that people are on multiple networks in that case. So that would harm it a bit that way. I mean, there would be a network effect, but I would believe that some people might be on more than one dating app. So it's not quite the same as someone who's devoting themselves to becoming a big seller on eBay or something like that. Mm -hmm. The one that everyone uses is Facebook as the example. Yeah. I mean, if you could ever create a business, in my opinion, that has to deal with auctions of some sort, I mean, there's just so many like psychological tendencies that go into like the auction system in general that companies could really take advantage of. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like a casino in a way, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, eBay, for example, you're bidding against other people. I feel like you get a rush every time you buy something or you want to be the highest bidder. Um, so, I mean, network effects, obviously, they all, for the most part, have a positive feedback loop, at least for the company. You know? Yeah, yeah, and so because of that, if you think you're going to get the best price, so for you, you might have a tendency to to pay the best price in those cases. That's very attractive to the seller, who you. I mean, it depends. In some businesses, the buyer is pretty big too, but a lot of times, like in eBay or something, the seller is probably more the one that it's important to have the best sellers on it. Um, so we're a little different, like like Copart and stuff. There are probably some pretty big buyers, especially outside of the United States, who care about it a lot too. But someone whose business is doing that. So eBay, it's obvious to people that you're buying occasionally one item from them or whatever. But by you collectively doing that, millions of people like you, you're creating an environment where some people want to be on that platform to actually make a living on it. And that interacting with those people and keeping them is more the kind of thing we're talking about. Same thing with like stock exchanges and stuff. If you're keeping certain broker dealers and stuff, then that's really attractive. And so they may be on it because of millions of people on the other side who who um, have less of an interest in it every day. But as long as they're on it, then there are other people trying to make a living off of it and stuff. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. No, it's definitely a great model. Uh, intangible assets. I'm kind of curious to hear about this one. So Morningstar so does intangible. Yeah, Morningstar does it as an example of patents and stuff. Drug patents are obviously very useful. Drug patents are very useful. Um, technology patents may be somewhat useful. The, a lot of technology companies that come out with good uh, technology are using it already in a way that I don't know if it, if necessarily having a patent on it would be that helpful. It, it certainly has tons of value. And for companies that are like net nets and things, if you have things like patents and, and um, in any of those fields and stuff, they could be worth a lot, but it, intangible assets like that, but it also can be things like movie libraries and stuff. So 
Um, all publishers of all kinds have tons of different intangible assets. I mean, uh, the example would be, um, right now, the example is Disney+. Plus. Uh, anyone could create, given enough money, what Disney did to create Disney+, Plus, but they don't own a content library like Disney does. So Disney just took a content library, which they otherwise would be selling to some people, or a bunch of it is stuff that basically was just in a vault. And they're now grouping it together and signed up a bunch of people to pay them every single month for it. So that that's the example that like Buffett would talk about and stuff is the intangible essence of Disney going back 60 years now. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, um, and those things tend to get written off pretty much. So you don't see them on the balance sheet. Sure. Yeah. Uh, cost advantage. Yeah. Cost advantage, you know, the classic one there for using the Buffett example is Geico because Geico went around um, agents, but cost advantages, cost advantage is a, pretty big one. Um, it's difficult for others to compete with. On the other hand, there's, there's some studies and stuff that suggest that cost advantages don't result in very high returns on capital for the very long term. So it's hard to say. Um, it, you know, all these moat things, they have the problem that you kind of tend to outgrow your moat. So your returns tend to get worse and worse over time. Uh, cost advantage, like people know that Walmart has a big cost advantage now, but relative cost advantage may have been bigger when it started out and was in the most rural places and stuff. Obviously, as it moved into more and more places, its cost advantage significantly declined. And you can see that its returns on capital have gotten worse over its entire history. So it was at its best in the very early days. Um, You know, Geico and Progressive have a cost advantage over the other companies in the insurance business. Um, It's hard to tell which of them have a cost advantage versus each other. I think Geico has a cost advantage in certain stuff having to do with who they have signed up and who are more likely to be retained as customers and stuff and some things like that. So more on the expense side. And I think Progressive has some cost advantage stuff on the underwriting side. But the two of them together, you can see in terms of combined ratios, are capable of having profits in years when the rest of the industry is in a loss position. So that's like what a cost advantage is. And it's very meaningful for them because if you're any other kind of insurer, besides Progressive or Geico, of the big ones, uh, you're very susceptible to having uh, losses, uh, underwriting losses in any year in which much of the industry is willing to write at, at uh, bad levels. So, you know, because of how insurance works, it's very obvious. Banking works the same way. It's pretty obvious that if you don't have a cheaper, uh, like in banking, if you don't have a cheaper cost of deposits than, than other banks in your area, and they make loans that aren't very profitable, well, you're going to be exactly as unprofitable as they are. And the same thing with insurance stuff. So usually cost advantages are very important in those kinds of businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, so moving down the list, you were talking about some industries and this was kind of surprising to me. So you said, I suggest finding an industry, the performance of any stock over time might be like 50% or so the stock's position within its industry, but the other 50% will be the industry. So yeah. I was kind of surprised that you said that. I mean, is that, I don't know. I mean, can you explain that? I mean, is that's not like you taking, I mean, is that a top down like approach to invest? You know what I'm saying? I'm kind of curious that you said that. Explain that. I've always had that top down approach in the sense that I think that probably 50% of the performance of any business is the industry it's in. Um, I, I mean, I like, I think maybe 14 years ago or something, I wrote a blog post in which I said it would be better to be the number two, um, in, uh, razors than the number one in steel. And I think that's very true. Yeah, um, true. Yeah. And so I think, and so there are entire industries which aren't that great and are unlikely to ever become that great. 
and there are entire industries which are pretty good even if you're not that great a business in it. So I think that I, I do think that half of your return in a, in a stock, put aside price, which is incredibly important, but pretend that these that all stocks are at the same sort of uh, uh, price and you're just getting the return of the business. If you own an entire business, I think only half of your returns in that business are likely to come from the performance of the company within the industry. I think the other 50%, basically, is likely to be the industry that you're in. So I think that um, for that reason, uh, the industries that I list there, you're much more likely to have good returns over the very long term than you are in, um, in, in lesser industries. I mean, it's very hard. Uh, I mentioned semiconductors. A few companies, I mean, very few companies, <laughs> have ever made what I would consider fortunes over time in the, in the semiconductor industry. Some of them, which are some companies that are very big to this day, if you look over the last 30 years, have not created any value for their shareholders. And, and that would be true for steel. And that would be true for lots of other things too. I mean, they're some of the biggest steel companies around. You could go back decades and they haven't created value um, for their shareholders. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And then uh, one thing I really liked is really to make good investments the way Warren Buffett does, you only need to establish three facts. This is an above average industry. So hitting on that 50% part, this mm-hmm. company has an above average position in this above average industry. Mm-hmm. And the stock of this company with an above average position in an above average industry is selling for less than the stock of average companies in average industries do in normal times. Yes. I think that's the Buffett approach. Basically, uh-huh. if you look at his successes with few exceptions, um, you could kind of argue that maybe Coca-Cola was not, did not meet number three, depending on exactly how you account for certain stuff and things that it was slightly more expensive than uh, like a normal stock. But other than that, he generally pays a little bit less than what you would pay for an average stock. And he thinks it's an above average industry and that the company has an above average position in the industry. If you look at like Apple or something, he basically waited to buy Apple till he knew that the cell phone, the smartphone industry was above average. He probably didn't think it was above average till he bought Apple. He was probably concerned that it might not be so good. I mean, he, he knew that historically TV and radio and all those kinds of manufacturers and computer manufacturers were not above average industries. So it'd be obvious that since almost any other consumer electronics business had never been an above average industry for the long run, uh, he was probably hesitant for that reason, even though he knew that Apple had a strong position and even though he could see what the PE was. But once he had all three together, then he would buy it, you know? Mm -hmm. So every time that we record, Jeff, I'm trying to bring something back for everybody listening. With everything going on in the economy right now, right? In the uncertainty, how do you, I mean, look, prices for all these companies are cheap, right? or they're cheaper than what they were at the beginning of the year because of the sell-off. I mean, how do you establish the moat, right? Or how do you feel confident in the durability of the moat, um, you know, for companies that you're looking at currently? Um, Well, there are different ways. Uh, You have to figure out what the moat is to really have confidence in it longer term. To establish there is some sort of moat, you would just need that it has predictable sorts of returns on capital and stuff. So... Uh, I, I like to use the coefficient of variation of the operating margin as just a real simple way of doing that. I don't know, real simple, but as a way of doing it, Excel can easily calculate it for you, so it is simple. But um, if you don't calculate it yourself, you can just look at 10-year numbers and see it's very predictable. And you have very predictable numbers. It, uh, I don't know. Do you have, can you go to QuickFS so I can show you an example of this? Yep, sure. Yeah. So if you go to QuickFS, we'll show you an example with um, Costco maybe, C-O-S-T. So, all right. So Costco here, if we look at their operating margin, right? 
you can see how stable generally their operating margin has been. Okay. Um, it has, uh, let's see, it has increased there a bit over time. So you have to worry about what that increase is and why that's happening, but it stayed very, very stable compared to other sorts of retailers. If we entered in the name of another kind of retailer, um, so if we did one that isn't a food and staples uh, type retailer, so if we did something like a, a department store or a, um, let's just type in like, um, yeah, so maybe try, uh, oh, well, okay, you can try Home Depot, that's fine. You want me to do Home Depot? That's fine. Okay. So as you can see, even Home Depot, which is a leader in that field and everything, is incredibly unstable operating margins with it increasing the entire time because it was very cyclical. It must have had some very bad results in the period right after the housing crisis. And then its results increased dramatically after that, right? So it's very hard to tell what the right operating margin is. You could be looking at it now and think, oh, the operating margin is 14%. Okay, but it was probably half that in the, in the financial crisis. So, and that's meaningful because if you look down at the bottom line, you see return on invested capital. In 2011, it was kind of a, a not so great business. Um, that, that's only so-so. And now it's an amazing business, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, w- whereas if you look at companies that have, they're, they're companies that have incredibly unstable sorts of businesses uh, versus that. So, I mean, like here, I mentioned um, uh, like a technology thing. Try Micron so I can show you what margins can look like. So, uh, yeah, there we go. Okay. So, I mentioned semiconductor and stuff. So, if we look at their operating margins, right? So, their operating margins are just are looking like commodities. This looks yeah, like a commodity. Uh-huh. Right. Well, what it looks like is that it makes nothing in times in which there's ample supply and then it makes tremendous profits in the few years in which there are not uh, ample supplies and which is tight, right? So it's made incredible amounts of money in the last three years in which supply was tight or something. And return on invested capital for that reason has been 20, 30, 40%, something like that. However, the last 30 years or something, it's been single digits, their average return on capital when you, when you figure out what it would be geometrically and stuff. So that shows you that there's only just these certain times when it happens. If you see that in general, that means you don't have a moat. We could do Monarch Cement, which is a little commodity, but has a moat on like Micron because you can see that now this is out of date. Oh, actually, they have it up to 2019. Yeah, they updated. So, yeah. So, if we look here, we can see that the return on invested capital was very poor back then, right? And yet, you can see that because demand for cement was terrible 10 years ago and is good now, that the company's return on capital changed dramatically, right? But at the same time, if you take chunks of time, like that five years or so in the beginning and the five years at the end, you can actually see we're looking at something very different than Micron. There was something happened here with the uh, industry where there was like no demand for cement and stuff. And then there was a lot of demand for cement. But clearly on average, this company, and if we can look on the return on invested capital chart up there, which shows us like 20 years, you can see it's cyclical, right? It's very cyclical. We can definitely see that. But you are seeing some evidence of a moat for a commodity because its returns on capital are actually quite stable for those periods, depending on the, how tight or the supply of cement is or something. So they're able in times of higher demand to make decent profits that way. And like another one is uh, if you type in USLM, so US Lime. Lime is another one which I would say is a commodity, but has much more greater stability. And if you look down at that return on invested capital at the bottom there, you can see much greater stability. So I want to just write off something that's a commodity because it depends on those forces that we talked about. There are commodities that have um, some ability to uh, earn good profits over time. But the thing that you have to look for for a um, moat 
in general is, I mean, for me, the number one thing would be, which I think is what Buffett talks about is, can you raise prices? If you raise prices by a small amount, a penny or something, does that risk losing customers, right? And I think that uh, the problem is on average for companies, uh, it, it is a very, the average company that you have, it's a very big factor that raising the price would be a lot, would be very harmful to them in terms of pricing. I think this is something that people overlook with like Coke. He says this about you could raise the price and stuff. I think people think he thinks he means, oh, you can keep raising the price of Coke. When that's not really what I think is his point. His point is in most industries, RC Cola can price itself at a dollar less uh, for a case than Coke and take tremendous amounts of business. You want a business where you can ignore what pricing your, your competitor is attempting to do. So it's not that Coke can double its price and people keep drinking Coke. At some point, they'll try to cut back. But if presented with even pretty big differences in price between the brand they like and the brand they don't, they don't make the decision just on price. You just have to be sufficiently good. It just has to suffice Coke for you. So it just has to be a price you're willing to pay for Coke. And you don't even really worry about looking for the other product that costs a lot less. Whereas in other industries that we look at, semiconductors and things like that, that's not going to happen. Uh, I think that's basically impossible. So the advantages is that you have to either be able to have a price advantage or you have to actually not have competition for some reason, like you do with US Lime and like you do with Monarch Cement. Um, a really, the best examples, of course, are industries where people won't leave for pricing reasons. And that includes things like the, the ones I mentioned before, but the professional services things and stuff like that. But in general, in general, ad agencies will charge you about the same amount. Uh, people won't normally leave one ad agency for another to save some money. Um, sometimes they do to consolidate some things and stuff, but they're pretty reluctant to do that. And definitely ad agencies are reluctant to steal business from each other by cutting prices. Uh, elevator companies seem to be uh, very reluctant to do that. And there are other companies like that where you have sort of more customary pricing things and stuff. I mean, even something like we could talk about hedge funds or something, right? If you have an industry where there's more an accepted level of this is what people charge. And if someone came in and said, I'm going to charge um, instead of two and 20, I'm going to charge uh, one and 10 and you're all going to come to me. That doesn't actually happen. So, I mean, you could get more business with one and 10 than two and 20, but actually uh, it's not as good as we'd expect in many industries. So there's some reason why people aren't all going to just the lowest price. There's some reason why with say hedge funds, they think that just picking the lowest price isn't a good idea, right? Mm -hmm. so they don't see it as like a commodity that way where it's easy to switch between them. So, whereas, you know, if you're looking in, uh, probably if you're looking in the milk aisle instead of the uh, cola aisle, you just will take whatever is the size you want and the lowest price for that gallon or whatever. You're probably not going to be too careful about what the, you know, what, what the price is, uh, what the brand is. Yeah. Got it. Um, the focus compound data they got sent out today. It was a really interesting okay. article by you. Said, would you be less likely to buy net nets for clients than you would for yourself? And your answer was, I'd be willing to buy a basket of net nets for clients. Okay. So we've talked a lot about net nets mm -hmm. on this website. We did uh, on this podcast. We did a podcast actually recently about net nets. Um, you know, and the way I titled this, I was kind of curious to hear your thoughts, right? Uh, I think there's two different ways of investing in net nets. It's okay. the Warren Buffett way versus the Benjamin Graham way. And Ben Graham bought net nets as more of a basket. And then Buffett in his early partnership days, he'd really concentrate on these situations. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, which, I mean, do you think 
buying a basket is the only way to do it nowadays in the market? No, I don't think a basket is the only way to do it. And I talk about this a little bit in the article. Mm -hmm. Um, So we can think about it mathematically and stuff. I mean, I don't, for example, I don't think in general that you would need to have more than about seven net nets. Um, Now, that's not going to be making people comfortable from diversification purposes in terms of like the market cycle. So if you want to get a performance that's close to an index, seven net nets is not going to help you a lot. But if your goal is, I don't want to lose a lot of money uh, because one net net will turn out to be a fraud or one net net will turn out to be an industry, say, I buy an energy net net, and that one has something happen with the price of energy that I never expected and it goes under, right? If you bought seven net nets in seven different industries, I think you would eliminate most of the risk um, that's specific to the businesses. Now, you would not if you were buying all net nets that were in one industry and exposed to the same risk. Uh, But as long as you did that, I think that something, let's say like that, five, six, seven, eight net nets would be enough, five to 10. So if you'd be willing to do that, my feeling is you don't actually need to have the basket. That's kind of a weird obsession that people have in terms of not seeing the bad results or the good results now, having it smoothed out for them. If you say, okay, I would put a third of my portfolio in 10 net nets, then you're saying that I will put 3% in any net net, or that's what logically you should be saying. So if there's only one net net in the world and you love it, you should put 3% in. You should not say, I have to wait till I have a basket of these. That, that to me is, it would be like an insurer saying, oh, I have a risk here that I would like to take, but I can't do this until I have a group of 100 different uh, risks that I can have, you know, 100 different policies on. I can't take this one special policy because it's priced to my advantage I see that, and I'm not risking too much of my capital on it. I'm only putting 3% in this, but I need to wait till I can put 30% of my capital into uh, 10 of these. I don't think that makes sense. So you have to figure out what your basket you'd like it to be. So let's say you want a third of your portfolio net nets, no more than that. And let's say you want 10 net nets. Well, then that's 3%. That's 33% divided by 10, let's round it down and say it's 3%. If that's the case, you should, if you find a net net you like, put 3% into it, even if it's just one net net. Psychologically, that bothers people because you buy that net net and then if something goes wrong with it and you think, oh, my net net strategy didn't work out, right? But mm-hmm. actually, you're going to have chances over your investment lifetime to buy a bunch of these. So you don't judge the performance on this one time, this one uh, net net that you had, just like you went in on one loss in insurance, uh, in a line of insurance. Same idea, or one loan at a bank, right? It doesn't mean that you shouldn't make the bet. And so if it's a good bet, then I would make it. But I would be aware of how much of your capital you want to risk on a single net net. And that makes it to be going from the idea of a bundle, right, a basket that you have of them, and then breaking it down from that into how much am I willing to risk on each individual net net. And so So don't, yeah. Yeah, go for it. Well, what I was going to say is don't think, okay, so the mistake you don't want to do is say, okay, well, I want to buy, have 50% of my portfolio net nets. There's only five net nets, so I'll do 10%. But if I could find 50 net nets, I'll do 1% in each net net. You don't want to do that. That's not a good idea because you could potentially be risking more of your capital on a smaller number of net nets than you want to do. Um, But as long as you're keeping the amount of capital at risk the same as what you would would be your goal if there were a lot of net nets available, then I think it makes sense to do it even if there's only uh, a few. And like, for instance, right now, I think, I'm not going to tell you what they are, but I think I have like three net nets in the U.S. that I like, you know, um, we don't own them, but I just mean there are three of them that, okay, I would look at them and say, okay, check. 
it works. This is what I would approve this. If someone was like, can I have a net in a basket of these three? Yes, these three are fine. But there's probably 10 others that pass a screen or something, but I would say, I don't like those. So I don't have a, there's no way for me to do a basket of 30 that I like. But if there are three risks that I see that I like, then I don't see any reason why you can't put 10% into those three. If you would put, you know, uh, if you would do, like I said, a basket of, of uh, 10 of them being, you know, a third of your portfolio. My question is, how do you manage that basket? So let's say you put together a basket. Um, do you, you know, take them all off at once? Do you put them all on at once? I mean, how do, how do you manage it? Uh, I mean, you could just buy them all now, and then I would wait 13 months. Got and uh, then anyone that was still a net-net, I would just keep. And anyone that wasn't a net-net anymore, I would sell. So it could not be a net-net anymore because it... Uh, the stock may not have done well, but the, it, it lost a lot of cash or it could not be a net net because it went up a lot. The big caution I would have for people is um, to let them stay for a certain amount of time. And my suggestion with net nets has always been just wait uh, for tax reasons. I say 13 months, but you could just wait a year and uh, it's just convenient for people to review after a certain number of months. And then when you do that, just look at it and say, okay, would I still put this bet on again? And if you would, then just do it for a whole nother year. I don't want people to, to constantly analyze a net net and see the price going up and stuff and think they should sell. People will tend to sell net nets very quickly because they don't like the business. So because they don't like the business, they'll like what they will say, they'll call it taking profits, right? They'll want to take profits really quickly because they're like, oh, wow, I made money on this business. That's terrible. I don't want to keep it. Whereas they tend to do the opposite thing with a really good business. It makes a lot of money. Uh, for them. And they don't take a lot of profits on it because they think, oh, it's a really great business. I'd like to keep staying in it for a while. With net nets, I would say just like have a certain set amount of time. I think it's convenient. Just a year is convenient for various reasons, but just wait a year and then either sell it if it's not a net net or just buy it or, you know, hold on to it if it is mm-hmm. a net net. And then just keep doing that until you finally sell it when it's no longer a net net. And that allows for the possibility that sometimes something will go up 150%. Because if you don't allow for that possibility, then I think you're just not, you're trimming your potential gains too much because net nets are incredibly cheap things. So just automatically selling after very small advances would worry me. You know, people will sometimes sell a stock if it goes up just 30% or something, especially if it's not a very good stock and and not a very good business. And net nets are so incredibly cheap that, I mean, like, so net nets here, I'm talking about two thirds of net current asset value. All the things I'm looking at are like half or something, right? So if they tripled, they'd be at one and a half times net current asset value. That's actually incredibly cheap for a business normally. So these things could triple and be actually so cheap that like there's the market's still pretty pessimistic about them. So I'm just saying, let them triple, give them a little time to do it so that the winners in your portfolio can make up for those losers on average. Uh, don't be too quick to do it and don't drive yourself crazy by looking at it all the time. So I really think like some sort of, formulaic approach of like, I won't touch it for a year or something is a good idea. I also like that because I think that will make you a little less likely to buy the, the very speculative, I would not touch them net nets. Because if you think you have to keep it for a year, then you won't do some really dumb things. The, the dumbest thing that I've seen from people is I talked to a lot of people who bought things that they knew had a significant chance of fraud. And I don't know why you would do that. But I think they thought they would get out before other people and stuff. And maybe it isn't a fraud and maybe it's somewhat a fraud, but not as bad a fraud as I think it could be a fraud, you know, that sort of thing. But I just, if you think you have to keep it for a year, no matter what, I don't think you would ever buy something that you have serious thoughts. It might be a fraud. 
But if you think of it as like, I'm trading this thing and I could be out of it in two weeks, then you might buy something that's a fraud and you probably won't be the first person out when it's revealed it's a fraud. Got it. Cool. Well, if you want to get access to this, um, uh, uh, to the Focus Compounding Daily, make sure you follow it, focuscompounding.com, enter in your email for free, or you can just follow me on Twitter at Focus Compound. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Mr. Jeff and myself. Jeff, good job out of you today. We will see you Friday. Everybody else, uh, thanks so much for following. Make sure you hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up. Feel free to leave a comment. Also, I am queuing all of the questions that people ask for our Q&As on Monday with Jeff. Uh, so if you leave a comment on your a question you would have for him, I will pull it and we will answer it the following Monday. I'll thank everybody so much for tuning in. Thanks so much for the support and we will see you in the next podcast.